welcome back to season two of the 8020 Endurance Podcast. Woo! Hope you missed us because we missed you, but we are back and better than ever. For season two, we have some great guests lined up, interview style episodes just as season one was, but we've got a little bit of a twist to it as well. We actually want you on the podcast, our 8020 Endurance athletes coming to tell their story with their training and their race results. So kind of a race recap, training recap, but alongside some 80-20 coaches, giving you some tips and tricks on maybe how to fix that for the, your next training round, for your next race, etc. And I think all athletes really learn from other athletes' race recaps, so I'm really excited to share our athlete stories with all of you. For more information on how you can apply to be on the podcast, please see our show notes. But more about this episode. And Devil Run Austin was hosted early this year in February where some of us ran the marathon, the half marathon, or just got to hang out with people who loved running. And I mean love running. This expert panel does not fall short of that. We hope you enjoyed the conclusion of our roundtable that we hosted in Austin. And to be a part of our next roundtable, see our show notes for Endeavor Run Boulder. That's the upcoming running retreat in early August of this year, hosted in Boulder. Seriously, it is adult summer camp. That's like the best way I can describe it. It's around people that love running, that have very similar passions, but you know, are just different. And what brings us together is the love of running and you can't top that. So enjoy the rest of this panel, parts one and two again, Race Mom Podcast. And for the long run, you can find that in our show notes. And we'll chat with you in our upcoming season two of the 8020 Endurance Podcast. Matt had a similar statement to Amanda around the questions that they're afraid to ask. What in your experience matter the questions or types of questions athletes are typically most afraid to ask? Um, well, I mean, uh, in a in a functioning coach-athlete relationship, generally the athlete wants to please their coach in various ways. Like they want approbation from from their coach that you know they 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 seek um you know they they value their coach's positive opinion of them so there are a lot of things that can come up in the course of of training and racing uh that could threaten the athlete um and it's a lot of it is assumed like the athlete thinks um you know if i ask this question or if i if i confess to this my my coach will be disappointed in me um that sort of thing so athletes tend they, they will tend to hold back um, from asking questions that they think um, will will alter their coach's opinion of them in a way that 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 they're um, you know, in a negative way. Um, so yeah, I try to facilitate that just by modeling it. Like um, I, I try to demonstrate to to athletes that um, the truth is always okay. Like the truth, there's no way to get where we want to go unless the truth is out there between us. So. There's nothing that could be true of you as an athlete that will lower my opinion of you or like shame has no place whatsoever. So um, Bob is, you know, one of my athletes, he he can speak to this just earlier. Bob was coming off um, possibly COVID, possibly something else uh, and uh, had missed some training. And when he was just easing back into it, I took one one of the workouts he was unable to do right before he got sick and slid it to just early in the process of coming back and it destroyed him. <laughs> you know, Bob is the kind of athlete I've told others here who will run through a wall if I, if I ask him to. 
You asked him to run through a wall for a workout is what you're yes. saying. Yeah, I just had to see if he would. Well, that's a great coach-coaching relationship. Right. But, you know, like, so it was just, it was too much too soon. And, and so I just, I took that, I felt bad about it, but I took it as an opportunity to immediately own it. Like, not to explain it away or to, to defend myself in any way. I just, I went, like, Bob, that was lazy on my part, and it was a bad move. And by doing that sort of thing routinely, I show, hey, there is nothing ever to be ashamed of. Like the truth is, is, is always okay. Coach B, you want more athletes to ask you the question, how can I better support your fitness journey? Yes. Look at the um, partnership, the relationship that a coach and athlete have, um, it, like a relationship in some aspects. And all too many times, communication sometimes tends like way partnership. It's so, uh, um, I want the opportunity for my athletes to give me some constructive feedback in a way that's not intimidating. So, so for, to be, to ask the question, how can I better support you? Are there any gaps? This is a good way for them to fill in that space. If there are some gaps, um, maybe in the timeliness of communication, um, Maybe they want to be coached a little harder, a little bit more direct and less way to go, coach, Matt, way to get rah, rah, like, uh, um, or higher level of, uh, attentiveness with accountability because in many cases, the training plan has the rapport, but our ability to, yeah, and sometimes, um, that, that was for. So just get that feedback feels comfortable and say, hey, coach, I like, or can change direction. Have that back and forth. It's very valuable. We've had in the course of this discussion today, quite a bit of talk about how the relationship between a coach and their athlete should progress, whether it's the nature of the dependency levels between the athlete and the coach evolving over time, the focus on honesty, the types of workouts, the kinds of questions. These are all sort of artifacts that you could tease out of a coaching relationship. And one theme that I'm picking up on in our conversation, and this may be just me, so feel free to disagree, is that athletes may need to be a little bit better about being more selective about their coaches and not feel like once they've been embedded with a team and they've picked someone, they're letting them down if they want to try something different or something along those lines. In fact, if you feel... I always say to coaches that I'm working with in any context, athletic, executive, or otherwise, if you feel that you can't leave me as a coach, that's an absolute sign that we have to have at least a conversation about the fact that something's not going right because there's a level of interaction there. Have any of you had athletes break up with you as a coach? And what was that conversation like for them? Maybe we can reassure some of the folks here or listening or otherwise that it's not the end of the world. It's actually best for everyone, or at least maybe a, taking a little bit of a separation or something like that. Any of you have experiences like that you could talk about? And maybe it's the other way around, too. Have you had to break up with any athletes? One of my mantras as a coach is zero awkwardness. Like, I, 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 I try to create a zero awkwardness environment with athletes. And, and one of the ways I do that is by putting it out on the table, like, we are probably not going to be working together until we both die. <laughs> you know, like it's the nature of these relationships that they, they, they end at some point. And like, it's, 
you're not going to hurt my feelings. Like I'm still going to be able to pay my bills. Like, you know, if, if you leave me, it's okay. Like, like, you know, for at any time, for whatever reason, like you can, you can start that conversation. And also it, you can say that, but will folks still feel, feel comfortable because you've said it? Maybe, maybe not. So I, I, I try to check in with athletes periodically as well. Um, like after like a big training cycle ends and, and a goal is accomplished, I will say, uh, what do you think you want, you want to give it another go or, or is it time for you to, to move on? And so you're bringing it up first, just reminds them. It's like, it's, it's not a breakup as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. There is sort of right at that very beginning, I think the discussions you have, you know, around, Hey, we need at least this long to see your progress. But like, if you feel like it's not working after that, it's fine. And your coach isn't going to take it personally. Like I've had people I coached for a really long time and then they were just kind of at a point where it was like, I don't really think you need me. Like you're not really training for anything. I, I don't really want you to just keep paying me for not doing much for you. And they did have a little bit of a, but I feel bad. What if I need you again? And I was like, well, I don't plan on going anywhere. So you can always leave a coach and come back. Um, but yes, I think the bigger thing is knowing if you've had conversations with your coach and you feel like you're not getting what you need, um, it's okay to go somewhere else and to try something else. That happens in every aspect of your life. It should happen with your coaching. And coaches are a lot less easier, or sorry, I should say a lot easier to break up with than the gym membership your coach will encourage you to get which requires you to give like 80 days notice and five notarized letters or anything along those lines. Hannah, talk us through our next question here for our panelists to write this down. Yes, gladly. How do you think about running that's different than you did 10 years ago? So what's different now than 10 years ago about your thoughts, your feelings towards running? And I want to give another quick shout out to a few of our other sponsors who really helped made this retreat possible. In addition, we'd like to thank RunGum for their continued generous support of Endeavor Run. I want to thank the folks at 8020 for providing plans to all of our attendees. One of the benefits to coming to this retreat is that all folks get a complimentary 8020 plan of their choice. I want to thank Born. I want to also thank Hustle Clean Wipes. Uh, who we met here in Austin not too long ago and were really enthusiastic about supporting this journey along with others. So thank you to them and a few others we'll continue to mention along the way. All right, Asher, let's start with you. You changed your answer. I'm eager to see what you came up with. Uh, I wrote holistically. Strength and the little things are big. Becoming more inclusive. Not about the workout. Matt, start with us there. What is it about? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is about the workouts, but it's. <laughs> That's the subtitle. His new book, by the way, which premieres in April, It's Not About the Workouts, is also subtitled, Colin, It's Actually About the Workout. <laughs> it's, it's not as much about the workouts as I, I previously thought. I mean, 10 years ago, it's hard to say, you know, I mean, because even 10 years ago, I was, I had 80 years of experience. <laughs> So, uh, but you know, I, I've, you know, I, early on when I was learning about like how to coach athletes effectively, I, I was more focused on the X's and O's, like what's, what's the methodology. And over time I've come to appreciate, um, increasingly that there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. It, like there's, um, it's like, there is no one perfect way. 
uh, to train. Um, it's more, it's more of a, a process, a set of pr principles that really matters. And yeah, so I, I'm just sort of, I, I think I've evolved in that direction, thinking less about perfecting uh, the X's and O's and more about um, maintaining a, a big picture perspective on the process as a whole. There's a nuanced question for you, Matt, about the workouts, but you've written so many training plans. You work with so many different types of athletes towards different goals. Do you find when you look at the science that informs the way you design the training plans that you publish for them, for books, et cetera, that there has been over time noticeable differences in, well, this workout that you should do, you know, four weeks before your marathon is typically, you know, five by five mile at this pace. But actually, if it's five by 4.5 miles, it's more effective. Are there any nuances you've seen over time with the subtleties within those workouts? Yeah, I mean, it's still... I don't know. I'm reading this other book now. In addition to the Frank Shorter book, it's called uh, "Scientific Training for Endurance Athletes." So it's a it's a primer on endurance training, brand new, hot off the press, written by a a scientist. And like a scientist, he takes like a bottom up approach. It's like let's get into the the physiology, into the weeds, and like let's deduce the optimal way to train. Like completely the opposite of my approach. But I'm reading that book for a reason because like I want to know, you know. I vote Democrat. I want to hear what Republican has to say because I've had my change, my mind change before. Same thing with like you know sports science and endurance training methodology, um, and, and so yeah, there, there's you know th there are those folks who would make the argument that we're not there yet, like we haven't completely figured it out, and that scientists can like you know put put existing best practices to the test and refine them further. Um, like I'm not super convinced that that's the case, um, uh, but, but I, I do receive it. Um, um, so yeah, I think, you know, we could have this conversation 10 years from now and there could be something that is a best practice, you know, at the elite level, at least 10 years from now, that is not today. And I, I kind of want to, I don't want to be late to that party, which is why I read books like the one I'm reading now. So join us 10 years from today here in Austin for our next edition of this podcast, where we revisit everything we've discussed. Amanda. Piggybacking off that, you wrote strength, but I, I take it, given the way you phrase it here, that that is one function of a way that the little things are big for you in the way you think about running that's different today than 10 years ago. Yeah. So I think it's kind of a combination of being willing to put in the time to do your dynamic warm up, to do the little bit of prehab. And really, it was doing the prehab that then convinced me how important the strength piece was, because I think as runners, we really just want to run. And so finally, reading the literature, seeing the data, seeing the results in myself and our athletes on strength training, just preventing the injuries so that we can actually do what we want to do, which is the run, but helping people feel stronger in their runs, but in their body, in their day. Um, so 100%, I've always kind of dabbled in strength, but over the last 10 years, turned it into the consistent part of a plan and it's required for our athletes now. How do you overcome that hurdle of, but I'm a runner, I don't want to do these things, but I'm a busy person who's trying to fit in runs and I don't have 25 minutes to do a dynamic warm up at the long jump pit at the local high school and stretch out my toes. What, what did you do that enabled you to take something that felt foreign to you and really embed it in the way so much, not only how you practice, but what you insist on for your athletes. One of the things we've done over the last couple years is I actually created a core program. So it's 10 minutes and it can be done before the run. And so everybody wants to work on their core anyways, but now I'm sneaking in their glutes and their hips. And so 
Worst case scenario, I know three or four days a week they're getting 10 minutes of like the stuff that is going to help prevent injuries. A lot of times from there, I can convince them to add another 10 minutes after their run of picking up some weights. And so I think for me, that is kind of always my philosophy in getting change to happen is how can I start with a small thing and build on that little thing rather than if I just overhaul your entire current training, I don't know how compliant you'll be. Asher, you think about things more holistically than you did a decade ago. I get the feeling Amanda may have teed you up for a good answer there. I mean, yes and no. She covered that really well. Um, I'll say even more on like goal setting. Um, Like 10 years ago, I looked at more and not that you don't look for a challenge now and you're like, I want to improve myself in this way, whether it be a PR or BQ or whatever. But now it's what experience am I looking for and what's the process along the way? Because that process typically often naturally leads to the goals that I'm heading towards. So how am I really focusing in on getting enjoyment out of things I'm doing more on a daily and weekly basis? I mean, yes, there's going to be like some suffering in there. Let's just be honest. (laughs) Uh, But how is that leading me to where I want to go instead of just focusing on that end result, that outcome that can be like really psychologically detrimental if that's the only thing that I value in my running? So how do I zoom out a little bit more and integrate things, experiences, yes, strength, <laughs> to help support that end goal instead of just being solely focused. You find that this holistic approach to accomplishing those end goals has changed the end goal at all for you over time? It's it's taken less pressure off of the end goal, but also often allowed the end goal to happen without so much like detrimental effect to my mental mindset, if that makes sense. Like there's less stress. It's more it, I accomplish things easier, if that makes sense. Like the progression happens more fluidly. Maybe not easier is the right way, but more fluidly. And I'm less likely to get burnt out personally. So if I'm only focusing on that goal, if, I, if I'm continually like pushing towards that and only looking at that, I often get burnt out in what I'm doing, even if it's something that I'd otherwise enjoy. Moving on to Coach B. Now versus 10 years ago, you think about running becoming more inclusive. Yes, and I'll just reflect back on my own personal experience. Starting a um, a running club a decade ago, um, with myself and my my brother and a handful of friends, that's turned into a wonderful experience of a thousand plus people, and I think without question the most diverse running club in a city of a million people in San Jose, California. And I I don't think it was until sitting here on this panel that I realized why that is, because there are some fantastic running clubs in the Bay Area. Wonderful, good friends of mine, um, founders, team captains. But a lot of those team captains um, aren't minorities. And I think other minorities, uh, I think 65% of my running crew um, are women. Look at this panel. Panel. Um, I happen to be a member of the uh, Roadrunners Club of America um, National Board, um, a committee that I sit on. And 10 years ago, that committee looks much different than it does today. I'm very proud of that. 
I'm very proud of us looking at our audience today and the diversity of this group. Um, and I look forward to, the, because only good things can happen when we have more voices at the table, different perspectives, good thing. I want to follow up on that last piece there about the good things that happen. I'm curious, Coach B, what are some of the good things that happen in general? And from your personal experience, as you've become more inclusive and seen running become more inclusive, what's done for you? I, um, I mean, I wouldn't be here right now without the one. I have something in common with everybody in this room. I love to get outdoors and I love to run. It's great. Um, and too many times we, we get hung up on things that tend to divide us. Um, having something in common gives us a great, a great springboard into seeing somebody else um, and respecting their opinion. Um, and it's afforded me the opportunity to meet the love of my life. It's afforded me the opportunity um, to follow my passion in helping people happy. Um, it's been the most rewarding experience for me personally and the emotional equity that I gain as a, uh, a fitness endurance coach, running coach, um, far outweighs my six figure salary as a hotel executive and all the luxuries that have and never been happier. Um, and then the business opportunities, well, the gift that keeps on just like putting one foot, you know, so I can go on and on and on but I'm, I'm pretty damn lucky. One quick final question for all of our panelists here. This is not one you have to write down. I'm just curious. As you think back to the conversation we've had today, if you were going to think about what's sort of sticking out in your mind the most over any of the topics we've discussed, for the folks here in the room at Endeavor on Austin and those listening on the podcast at home, give them a piece of advice, something they should go and do in the next two weeks. Matt, Matt, and no, Matt, they're going to buy your book anyway. Go ahead, Matt. Well, just, um, I would say don't get all of your information and advice and guidance from one place. Um, you know, cause I, I guess I, I am perceived as an expert or, or an authority on, on running. Um, but I have learned a, a ton just from listening to my fellow panelists here. So like. I don't get all my information from one place, like, and, and nor should, should any, should any runners, like nobody knows at all. Um, and yeah, I mean, honestly, like, yeah, I, I am here as a coach, but I view, I view environments like this one as learning opportunities for me. Um, so yeah, don't get all of your information from one place. To quote the great Michael Scott. Wikipedia is awesome because literally anybody from anywhere can write about anything they want. So, you know, you're getting the best possible information. Um, I would say always challenge your preconceived notions. So whether it's on what the definition of slow is, like what slow actually means or having to be perfect in your programming. Um, or what you can actually ask of your coach or learn from your coach, like challenge yourself in what you think you are allowed to do and ask and believe in, in yourself and then, and expand on that. 
I have two. One, because I must always say it, do the dang warm up. Um, so actionable advice, do that immediately. Um, and then the other one is remember that running is supposed to be fun. So for all the workouts and the details and the tips and the this and the that and the goals, like no one has to run. We're choosing to do this. And probably we started out because it was enjoyable and stress relief. And then we started chasing a goal. And then we started getting really consumed with our watch. And then we were frustrated. And so if you're hitting one of those moments, kind of coming back and just taking a second to be like, oh, I'm, I'm choosing to do this. And this, this is fun. This is enjoyable for me. So coming back to that why I think is huge. All right. Um, I think it's very appropriate. Question for my fellow panelist. No matter what level you are as a athlete, um, no matter what pace elite athletes know, or just going, rediscovering your inner athlete. It's okay to consider getting a coach. It is. Um, and you may have people in your life that may question, oh, you're a runner and you have a coach. Don't let that uh, be a barrier. Um, and some good things can happen as well when you have somebody there along that journey with you, navigating um, your path to a greater sense of health and, and happiness. Because of the elemental nature of running, it seems like something that as a, someone outside the sport, you wouldn't need coaching for. But all of our friends who are golfers go to golf coaches to get tennis lessons, have ski instructors, all of the other sports that we are involved in, which are seen as more technical and therefore having a degree of expertise that's needed. It's completely commonplace to consult and find a coach. It's only once you really understand running, you realize how it's the technical things that can often add up to a larger picture. And there is a lot of technical elements to getting it right when you're really chasing goals. So I think it's really important to remember, like, you can go to running lessons just like you can go to piano lessons if it's something you want to do. Hannah, you want to wrap us up for today and thank our panelists? Yes. Just want to thank you all for your wealth of knowledge today. Um, this was super fun doing the live recording in front of all of the runners at the Endeavor Run Retreat. Again, thank you to all the sponsors that Jake listed out. I probably can't remember all of them off the top of my head right now. But I mean, you just see the diversity on the panel. And for more information about the panelists, do check the show notes of each episode. And thank you so much for your thoughts and sharing your everything you've learned and embarking it on this retreat. To learn more about Endeavor Run Boulder, please see our show notes. And to learn more about how you can be on our podcast for season two of the 8020 Endurance Podcast, check out our show notes as well. Looking forward to an awesome season two, and we'll chat with you then.